Good evening and welcome. Thank you all for joining us this evening. My name is Jamie Boskett. I have the privilege of serving as the President and CEO of your Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And in case, and maybe this is the first time for some of you to be in this building since this renovation has come to a completion, uh, we give you our wholehearted welcome and hope that this will be the first of many visits. Uh, the lobby, of course, looks quite spectacular, but what's behind it? in the galleries, in the work that's been done by this team, I'm just, we're all, well, half exhausted, but, but mostly, mostly brimming with pride and gratitude that we've been able to make this investment into your State History Museum. So again, if you haven't had a chance yet to come see the galleries, uh, I really uh, I hope you will do, uh, do so very soon. Uh, we've welcomed, and this is quite incredible too, this also goes to the dark bags under all of our eyes, we've had the better part of 10,000 people come to this museum in just about a week's time since we finished this project. So thank you again. Uh, before we introduce tonight's special speaker, uh, a few upcoming event highlights I'd like to share. Uh, this Thursday, May 26, that's two nights from now, at 6 p.m., members, and I see a lot of your faces out there, members are all encouraged and invited to come join us in the beautiful gardens at Virginia House, our property uh, over on the James River. And tickets, I will just note there's a few, not many, but there are a few tickets left uh, that you could purchase uh, tonight if you'd like for that event. Uh, and I, I can tell you that the, the weather, I guarantee to be better than it is tonight. <laughs> it just has to be, it just has to be. Uh, Thursday, June 2nd at noon, we'll be back here in the Robbins Family Forum for a uh, talk by Nancy Shepard, who is always so entertaining. Uh, she'll be speaking on her new book, Lost Attractions, The Parks and Places That Built the Tidewater. Uh, so a really great way to kick off the summer, I think. Thursday, June 16th at 6 p.m., I hope you'll join us for a presentation of a brand new book called The Life and Legacy of Enslaved Virginian Emily Winfrey. Uh, with author Dr. Jan Meck, who's also a volunteer extraordinaire here. Uh, also joining her is the great-great-granddaughter of Emily Winfrey, Dr. Emily Jones, and a special guest from the Sacred Ground Historical Reclamation Project, Anna Edwards. Uh, an incredible panel and a really compelling Virginia story. That's June 16th at 6 p.m. Uh, now, before I proceed to introduce our speaker, I'd like to take just a moment and ask that you all check to make sure your cell phones or anything else that makes noise has been turned off. Thank you. And also remind you that while you're looking for your phone, you check to make sure your wallet's there. Uh, we'll have books available for sale following the lecture. And I know that our speaker would love to uh, put his John Hancock to that uh, special book. So, uh, and it's um, a great read. So to that point, uh, this incredible speaker tonight and the, uh, the book that we'll be hearing about. As the Allies raced to defeat Hitler, four men, all in the same unit, earned medal after medal for battlefield heroism. And in the campaign to liberate Europe, each would gain the ultimate accolade, the Congressional Medal of Honor. Tapping into personal interviews, and a wealth of primary sources, Alex Kershaw has delivered what may be uh, his most gripping account yet of American courage. Spanning more than 600 days of combat from North Africa to Nazi Germany, 
Once the guns fell silent, these four warriors would discover just how heavy the Medal of Honor could be and how great the expectations associated with it. Alex is a journalist and a New York Times best-selling author of books uh, all on World War II. Uh, born in York, England, he's a graduate of Oxford University and has lived now in the United States since 1994. His many books, and I hope that you have read all of them, they're really uh, quite incredible. Uh, first and foremost on, on my mind, being uh, here in Virginia, The Bedford Boys, One American Town's Ultimate D-Day Sacrifice. Also, and in, in just finished this uh, recently, The Liberator, One World War II Soldier's 500-Day Odyssey from the Beaches of Sicily to the Gates of Dachau. The First Wave, The D-Day Warriors Who Led the Way to Victory in World War II, and then, of course, the subject of tonight's talk, Against All Odds, a true story of ultimate courage and survival in World War II. Uh, we couldn't be more thrilled to have you all here. Thank you for your wonderful support of this institution in our growth and our progress. Please join me, if you will, in a warm welcome for Alex Kershaw. Good evening. Can you hear me okay? I've been given very strict orders that I'm not supposed to step out of the limelight. But as a limey, I think I shouldn't be in the limelight. <laughs> um, I have been in your fair country for 28 years. And um, I have to say I've been on a book tour recently. And this is my final stop on a two-month-long odyssey around mostly the south and the eastern coast. And I have been to four other places in Virginia. And I'll tell you this, and I mean it genuinely, this is my favorite state in America. Um, <laughs> and you all know why. I don't have to remind you. You have a great climate. You have mountains. You have ocean. You have the best history, the longest history. And also, in about two weeks, I'm going to stand on some golden sands in Normandy, where 19 Virginians gave their lives on June the 6th, 1944, the Bedford Boys. Um, I've been intimately connected to America, not just through my wife and my son, um, since I moved here in 1994, but I got to know America. I got to know a small town America. I, get to, I got to fall in love with the greatest generation because of the time I spent in Virginia, in Bedford, exploring that one small town's immense, immense sacrifice so that I, as a European, could grow up in peace and freedom. It is now 79 years since the guns stopped firing in Europe. All of my life, I've been able to vote. All of my life, I've never seen a war in Europe except until recently. Um, so anyway, um, I became fascinated. Thank you, Jamie, for a wonderful in introduction. Um, and I think this is an amazing institution. I'm overawed by the, the speed and the beauty of the new additions here. Um, I'm a World War II nut. I love World War II. I've spent most of my adult life writing about it. Today, as I speak, 
from 16 million of you Americans who served in uniform in the greatest conflict in history, in the greatest chapter in your country's history, apart from when you kicked us limeys out a long, long time ago. <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> Divine right is not a good idea, okay? And I'm going to be back in England in a few days for the Queen's uh, Platinum Jubilee. And I, I love the Queen. Everyone loves the Queen. She's done a fantastic job. But I'd rather not have royalty ruling over me. I'd rather live in a republic. And this is a wonderful, wonderful republic. It's a beautiful experiment in democracy. The finest in history. But I love World War II, as I was saying. And from the 16 million of you who sacrificed, who wore a uniform, who fought with an unparalleled unity. This country has never been more united than in World War II. Never. And we should think about that. There's no politics in a foxhole. There were no politics at Midway. There were no politics on Omaha Beach. There were no politics at the Battle of the Bulge. There were no politics for these guys in the Third ID as they fought from November 1942 to May 1945, to liberate countless millions of Europeans from the greatest evil, apart from communism, of modern times. 200,000, as I speak, from 16 million left alive. Just 200,000 from 16 million. In 10 years' time, basically none of them will be alive. Um, I became fascinated by the Medal of Honor in World War II. There are 472 recipients of that ultimate honor from World War II. Most of them, not surprisingly, were given posthumously. You literally had to die to win the greatest honor, or rather earn the greatest honor. No one won the Medal of Honor. They earned it. 472. From that 472, one division had almost a tenth. So when you get to the ruins of Nuremberg, when you get to the very heart of darkness at the end of the war, after almost 140,000 mostly working-class Americans have given their lives to liberate this beautiful place, you had 90 US divisions in the European theater. One of them, the third ID, these guys, had 40 medals of honor, 40. Now think about this, the Glamour Boys, the Screaming Eagles, the guys in Band of Brothers, we all know that those guys won World War II single-handedly. Uh, I thought it was John Wayne. <laughs> don't get me started on John Wayne. <laughs> Great movies, but anyway, um, yeah. Um, so yeah, the Screaming Eagles, but the guys that won World War II, um, thanks to Tom Hanks and HBO. Two medals of honor. 40 for my guys. Most, of, most people have never heard of the 3rd ID, the 3rd Infantry Division. Hands up in here who's heard of the Marne men, the 3rd ID. Okay, that's not bad. But if you asked people that aren't history aficionados and World War II fans about the 3rd ID, they wouldn't be able to tell you much at all. 40. Um, so I... I went out to Oregon about three years ago, uh, pre-COVID, so that would be before COVID, BC, not, not, <laughs> not, 
don't know what today is, but anyway, yeah. Um, BC, and I went to um, Oregon, and I was fascinated because I, I went to see the oldest living Medal of Honor recipient at the time. He was 98. He was called Bob Maxwell. And in 90, when I went three years ago, there were only five living Medal of Honor recipients from World War II. Bob Maxwell was one of them. And I unashamedly thought, I'm going to be a little bit of a trophy hunter here. How about I try and interview every single living recipient of the Medal of Honor, all five, and I managed to get four out of the five. And I met Bob Maxwell. 98 years old at the time, he was the oldest living Medal of Honor recipient. Third ID. That patch there, the blue and white stripes, he had a massive picture of that in his retirement home. Very, very religious indeed. He said every single day that I was in that war, and he fought from Sicily all the way through Italy, and then finally earned the Medal of Honor in Besançon in France. He said every day I woke up, I prayed. Every time before I slept, if I slept at all, I prayed. And I mumbled prayers every single day I was in combat. There's only one reason I came home. It's because I prayed. Because of him, the Almighty. Finally, I persuaded him to bring out his medal. He didn't want to put it on, didn't want to wear it. He put it on, and after a while, after I talked to him for a while, he said, you know, Alex, this medal has weighed heavy on me. I didn't set out to win this medal. I didn't want to earn this medal. A grenade bounced on a chicken coop in Besançon, middle of nowhere in France. I was with eight other guys. I saw the grenade bounce down here. I jumped on it. I didn't make a decision. I didn't think about it. I just did it. But now I'm a public superhero, and I have been all my life. I was doing exactly what any other soldier I would hope would have done. And he said, you know, you come home, and you're traumatized, and you've lost most of your friends, and you just feel incredibly lucky that you're alive. But I didn't want to be a public superhero. We can't get divorced. We can't get drunk in public. We are held to a different standard. <laughs> We're somehow not human. We're superhuman. We're superstars. Bob Maxwell passed away about six months later. Today, there's only one... American. One American, Woody Williams, who earned the medal for actions on Iwo Jima, that horrific bloodbath in early 1945, only one American alive today who received the Medal of Honor out of those 472. We are looking at the going down of the sun. No longer the sunset. The sun is about to dip. We are about to lose the human connection with this amazing, beautiful generation and this incredible story. So anyway, I'm going to flip through some images now. And uh, very quickly, they're going to be quite emotive. I'm going to try and keep the energy quite high. And I cherry-picked four guys out of the 40. I just thought, which ones do I like most? I wanted them to have something in common, i.e. they interacted with each other, fought together during the war, had interesting lives beforehand and then knew each other after the war. But I, I looked through the 40, and I thought, who are the ones that open up my heart? Which of these guys make me feel something really deep? Which of these people make me feel like there's something supernatural, absolutely unbelievable about what they did and how they could survive? 
And I still can't believe that some of these characters managed to survive what they did. Third ID, November 1942, here, North Africa. They arrived first, the first Americans to start to bleed and die and kill to liberate Europe, the European theatre. They went all the way to Berchtesgaden at the very end. Five amphibious invasions, largest number. Largest number of Medal of Honours, I've told you, but the largest number of deaths. Longest time in combat to liberate Europe, highest number of fatalities, that's young Americans didn't come home, biggest battles, most amphibious invasions. No single US division in World War II did more to liberate Europe than the 3rd Infantry Division, the so-called Marne Men. There's one of my four guys, Captain Morris Britt, 30th Infantry Regiment, and that's him in November, that's him with a Medal of Honor around his neck, but he arrived in North Africa in November 1942, fought all the way through to Italy. One of the things I would stress about the characters, most of the characters that I write about, is that they had very, very tough upbringings. They had been to war before they went to war. They knew how to shoot, to put food on the table. They had suffered immense poverty and they'd been through the Depression. They were tough and they were very young. Morris Britt grew up in Arkansas. He was a fantastic athlete, played for the Detroit Lions. That's a bit of a shame because they were a terrible team at the time. I, don't think, I think he only won one game with uh, the Detroit Lions. But anyway, he was a superb athlete. Pearl Harbor happens. He's called back into the military because he was in ROTC at college, and he ends up in the third, 30th Infantry Regiment of the 3rd ID and is, become, becomes a captain. Uh, Lucien Truscott was a 3rd ID commander. Now look at that face. I'm going to ask you to look at this guy. Look at this face. That's a guy that smokes two packs of filterless cigarettes a day. That's a guy that drinks a lot. A lot. That's a guy that arrived in the European theatre with a, uh, a copy of War and Peace. A literate, a literate man, a well-read man, a well-educated man, and a fantastic leader of warriors, a Patton-esque figure. That's an that's a Air Force flying jacket he's wearing. So he had that panache, that style that Montgomery and other good leaders had. I believe the finest American division commander of World War II. I'm biased, but I think he was. And he led the 3rd ID all the way from Sicily right through to the German border. A fantastic leader. Look at his eyes. There's Audie Murphy, one of my characters. You say, ah, how many people? Everybody knows Audie Murphy in this room, don't they? Yeah, OK. Does anybody not know Audie Murphy? There you put your hand up. <laughs> Look how young he looks. I mean, he, he is looked remarkably young there. He lied about his age. Texas cotton-picking country came from. His family was scattered like so many cotton seed because his father abandoned the family. Several brothers and sisters went into orphanages and care homes. A very, very, very impoverished, brutalized adolescence. He uh, tried to join the Marines, rejected. It was too small, too light, tried to join the uh, army rejected. Finally, his sister lied about his age on an affidavit, and he entered the third ID just in time to arrive as a private on the 10th of July, 1943, in Sicily. 
And I've been to the very beach where Audie Murphy landed in southern Sicily. His company commander, his company commander, a guy called Keith Ware, who's one of my characters, after a few days, pulled Murphy out of the line in Sicily. And he said, what do you think you're doing? Or words to this effect. Why are you in my company? I'm not going to get... I'm not going to be responsible for getting some kid killed. And Ware later said that he didn't look 18. He looked like he was 14. So that picture there, he looked even younger than that. And he pulled him out of the line and said, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to get you killed. I don't kill children. And Murphy went back out of the lines, became his runner, and then a few days later disobeyed orders. Murphy, Ware found him again in the front lines and said, OK, if you want to, if you want to go to war... You can stay in the front lines. And boy, did he stay in the front lines. You're looking at the greatest American warrior infantryman that I've ever come across. And believe me, I researched this guy in great detail. I looked at his actions. I studied what he did. And he is the most lethal, most effective combat warrior that I've ever come across. And some people believe the most decorated soldier in US history, that's arguable. He's certainly the most decorated US infantryman of World War II, an absolute phenomenon. That's the Tom Brady times 10 <laughs> times 100. Because we're talking about, we're not talking about a football field here, we're talking about a battlefield. And to perform as he did, you can't find a superlative to describe just how good he was. So I'm going to speed up, otherwise I'll be here all evening. <laughs> and you don't want to be here all evening. There's a picture of the, third, uh, the Fifth Army, to which the Third ID belonged. Sicily, 10th of July, 1943. Salerno, September 1943. That's the third amphibious invasion for the Marne men. Americans, you nearly had your ASSESs handed to you at Salerno. A very, very bloody battle, almost a complete disaster, September 1943. Welcome to hell. Welcome to Italy. It's not a beautiful country if you're in the third ID in World War II. It's just one mountain after another. And you lose half your friends to take one mountain. You get to the top. The clouds lift. The mist lifts. And you see another goddamn mountain. And as people that have been to Italy know that all the way up central Italy, it's one mountain after another. As Ernie Powell said, the most dangerous place you could find yourself, but also one of the most beautiful. And that's the Fifth Army on the march in the fall of 1943. 100,000 American casualties by the end of the Italian campaign. So we land there in September 1943, and we're still knocking on the Alps in May of 1945. We still hadn't liberated all of Italy by May 1945, because there's a very long ridge of mountains all the way up the central spine, that bloody spine of Italy. There's Mount Rotundo, 1943. You can see this is the kind of landscape. Uh, Naples is in the distance here, so you're in southern Italy. And Brit, Maurice Brit, who I mentioned to you earlier on, was described as acting like a one-man army. He apparently threw 32 uh, grenades, fired several weapons, repelled a German counterattack on a mountain, in the middle of nowhere, literally, in November 1943, for which he earned the Medal of Honor. There he is, 
back in, uh, back in the US. Um, he earned the Medal of Honor in November 1943 and then participated in the Third ID's fourth amphibious invasion at Anzio. Now, hands up people who know much about Anzio. You've heard of Anzio. How, how many people know about Anzio? Okay, good. Three-month stalemate. A bloody stalemate. The Third ID were very heavily involved. Some people say that Lucien Truscott, the general I showed you earlier on, was the star of that battle. Anyway, yesterday... Yesterday was the 23rd of May, I believe. 955 guys from this gentleman's division, the 3rd ID, were killed or wounded yesterday in 1944 to break out of Anzio. That's the largest number of casualties from any US division on any one day in World War II. And you know what they called them back here and back in England? The D-Day Dodgers the guys that missed D-Day. What were you doing in Italy? Were you smelling lemons and walking around? Did you have a nice time in the sun? They were called the D-Day Dodgers. But yesterday, the highest losses of any division in one day to break out of Anzio. He lost his arm. This arm here. Football player. You don't want to lose that. Especially if you're in the NFL. Shame about the Detroit Lions, but, you know. He lost his arm, blown off at Anzio brought back, and that's him in May 1944, in, back in, in uh, actually in Atlanta. That's a picture of guys in sleds. We thought that maybe if we put people in sleds and towed them, not so many people would be killed. It was a way of protecting them. It failed. It didn't make any difference. It still killed an awful lot of us to, to break out of Anzio. And down here, with his... Sleeve tucked into, you'll see, sleeve tucked into his uniform is Brit receiving the Medal of Honor on the 5th of June, 1944, at the Razorback Stadium in Arkansas. And here is a guy, I talked to his uh, daughter uh, just a few days ago, Michael Daly. And this guy, look at his face. This guy's a punk. <laughs> He's a punk. He's a super badass. 1943 at West Point, he drops out. One day he picks up his books and throws them in the corner. He said, to hell with this, there's a war on. Hated the hazing at West Point, which is kind of an oxymoron. Why would you go to West Point if you didn't want to get hazed? Hated the regimentation. Why would you be at West Point if you didn't like regimentation? If you didn't like taking orders? Six foot three. Father was a highly decorated World War I veteran. He's the only middle-class, upper-middle-class kid that I write about. Everybody else grew up dirt poor. Irish Catholic from Connecticut. Dad, his father, was a successful lawyer between the wars. Well-educated. Drops out of West Point, 19. First day of combat. As a private, as a grunt. Omaha Beach, 18th Infantry Regiment, 6th of June, 1944. Bedford boys over here, slaughtered, 6.30 a.m. in the morning. He lands at Easy Red at about 1.30 in the afternoon. Fights through Normandy, receives the Silver Star, his first of three in the breakout from Normandy in July of 1943. Um, the fifth amphibious invasion. There's not going to be more than this. There's only five, okay? Well, I'm not going to go on too long. Fifth amphibious invasion <coughs> is Operation Dragoon. Third ID involved. 
This is the avenue of stenches. So we land 15th of August 1944 on the Côte d'Azur. I've been to the very beach near Saint-Tropez. That was a nice part of the research uh, where Audie Murphy comes ashore. And then we storm up through Provence towards Germany. This is the most successful amphibious operation of World War II. Perfect coordination between the air, the ground, and the Navy. We just pounded the hell out of everything. We learned from other operations that the Navy just pounds the hell out of them. We have coordination between the air and the ground, and we move. And whenever we found the Germans exposed, whenever we spotted the enemy exposed at this point of the progress of the third ID, we slaughtered them as fast as possible. And here you have hundreds and hundreds of Germans that have been hit by American fighter, fighter bombers and other planes. And it was called the Avenue of Stenches for a very good reason, because it stank for a long time afterwards. I have one son. He's 24 years old. Thankfully, he just graduated college, so I'm no longer quite so bankrupt. <laughs> this is Alexander Patch, one of the most underappreciated army generals of World War II, and that's his son, also Alexander. He commanded the 7th Army. He commanded the 3rd ID, commanded the 45th, the 36th. He was the top guy, the army commander, for the men that I write about in my book. In October 1944, as the 7th Army pushes towards the Third Reich, the fighting gets tougher and tougher. The weather gets worse, and he finds, discovers, that his only son is being killed in combat in October 1944. And if you read the letters to his wife, where he explains, I didn't have to send him back. He was wounded, but he wanted to go back. I didn't have to send him back when she had asked him to keep him out of combat. So you lose your only son and your wife writes to you and you have to explain to your wife why you didn't carry out her wishes, which was to keep him out of combat. He didn't keep him out of combat because he's a warrior, he's a soldier. All those guys wanted to fight. Siegelsheim, this is on the German border. You can see Germany over here in the, in the, in the far distance here. Uh, the guy I mentioned earlier, Ware, received the Medal of Honor for actions there on the December the 26th, 1944. We'll talk about, more about him later. I've been to that vineyard there. Germany is close. But the closer you get, and once you get into Germany, they fight harder. Because this is, this is their country. This is the Heimwehr. You don't step onto German soil and expect, as an SS officer once told me. He said, why do you think we've been fighting since 1939? Do you think us in the SS, do you think proud Germans, from 1939 we've been fighting? Do you think in 1945, when you Amis, you decadent Americans, you half-breeds, when you get to our border, do you think we're just going to put down our guns and not fight? We fought for every inch. Mar January, 26th of January 1945, Audie Murphy, still alive. He's fought from the 10th of July 1943, and I've shown you all the way that he fought, all the way through Italy. Four amphibious invasions. And that's him on the tank there, firing a 50 cal for about an hour, repelling several German attacks while the tank is burning beneath him. 
Murphy was wounded twice before this. On one occasion, he was hit by a sniper in late October 1944. He was hit by a sniper in the buttock. He went down. I should say that the wound later became gangrenous, and there were three or four pounds of flesh taken out of his buttock. So when he's standing on that tank, I don't mean this in the worst way, he's literally only got about, a, he's had half of his ASS is missing. When he was shot by the sniper, and this is my only example of Murphy at his best that I'm gonna give you. When he was shot by the sniper, he went down on the ground and he rolled over to try and find some kind of cover. And he looked ahead of him, imagine the pain. He looked ahead of him in the undergrowth. He had perfect eyesight, perfect eyesight. And he moved the carbine that he held from the right hand to the left hand. And he lay down and he waited for a cape to lift, a camouflage cape of the sniper. He waited several seconds because he knew the sniper was going to try and finish him off. The cape lifted, split second, crack. Murphy put the bullet right through the sniper's head like that from 50 yards. I would not have liked to be been a German in World War II anywhere near Audie Murphy. I was about to say Kraut, but I'm not allowed to say that, even though I'm an Englishman, and we are allowed to say that, because my grandfather was killed by them in World War II. Anyway. Moving on towards the end now, thankfully, and this is January, February 1945, and Michael Daly, who I mentioned earlier on, the punk from West Point, he was wounded in September 1944 near Aachen, taken out of the line, sent to Alexander Patch's headquarters to be his aide. Very, very bad driver, didn't want to be an aide, and asked Patch if he could go back on the line. Patch didn't want to send him back on the line because Michael Daly's father was one of his best friends. But he gets his wish, and there he is in the Colmar pocket in January, February 1945. Now look at the fingers. Look at the slimness of that. He had thin fingers, but he's thin. He was thin before he went into combat. And this is him in one of the toughest battles of World War II. And he will fight from here in some of the bitterest conditions you could find yourself as an American in World War II, all the way to Nuremberg. Aged 20, as a company commander, A Company, 15th Infantry Regiment, 3rd ID, 200 American beating hearts under his command. Aged 20. And all you want to do, all you want to do is bring them home. 200. 20 years old. He loses a pound every day in combat from stress and fatigue. Probably sleeps maybe two or three hours a night if he's lucky. Every day, guys get killed. Every day, he gives orders. Get out of your foxholes. We have to move forward. Finally, we cross the Rhine. And it's April of 1945. We know we've won. We know where Russians are. We know that the war is as good as won. But guess what? There's a hell of a lot of Germans that don't know that. And they fight right to the bitter end. This is one of the first times that we actually moved with any speed, apart from in Normandy, under Patton, during the whole European campaign. We discover Hitler's beautiful, odd invention. 
so we we started to roll quickly. That's war. That's not the Ukraine. That's not Donbass. But it could well be. It looks familiar, doesn't it? That's what we did to Nuremberg. We, the British bombed the hell out of Nuremberg from 1940 as soon as we could. Hitler held his famous rise in the 90s. The last place you want to be as a young American, just a week or two from the end of the war, where the door is open and the light is finally streaming through that door and you have hope. You have hope of surviving. You have hope of seeing your family again. You have hope of living. Because before you didn't. Before the odds were that you were going to die. Before officers would tell you, you're dead. Forget about living. Do your job today with honor because there's no chance that you're going to get out of this. But now you see the door open. The war is almost over. And you're nervous as hell. You're jittery as hell because you just want to live. The last place you want to find yourself is urban combat. Very deadly in Nuremberg, the symbolic heart of the Third Reich facing the SS. That's what Michael Daly and A Company and the 15th Infantry Regiment, that's where they found themselves. On the, uh, on the 17th of April 1945, 20-year-old Michael Daly took out four machine gun nests going ahead of his company ahead of the scouts, ahead of, ahead of the, front, the front men in his company. And for those actions, he earned the Medal of Honor. On the 18th of April, he got to the very heart of Nuremberg, and we will be going there, the, the Virginia Museum. This wonderful institution is going on a trip with me in a few weeks' time. We'll go to the very spot that I'm going to talk to you about right now, quickly. I went to a medieval wall around the heart of Nuremberg. On the 18th of April, Michael Daly stood on a pile of rubble, and he put his head just above the wall. Crack, a sniper. And he was shot through the face, from here all the way through here. 20 years old. He falls to the ground, and I read an eyewitness report that described what happened next. This guy's a leader. He lies down, and he pulls a, a pencil out of his pocket. He's choking up blood. And he sticks the pencil down his throat and performs basically a primitive tracheotomy to clear his windpipe, to keep himself alive. As he later said, I still wanted to lead. I was never going to stop leading. Put in a group of guys. This was common in World War II. Put in a group of guys in an aid hospital. They're done. Triage is important. These guys aren't going to make it. Given last rites, somehow he keeps breathing. Operated on, lives. Comes home to America. And for the actions that month, the day before, he received the Medal of Honor. This is a place where we're also going to go on our journey. It's one of the very imp most impressive places in the Third Reich. And here you have an astonishing picture. This is the largest number of Americans in one group to earn and be awarded the Medal of Honor on a battlefield in World War II in Europe. Five guys, all from the third ID, at the Sports Palace in Nuremberg, where that ranting, psychopathic maniac Hitler 
held his rallies. And he really was utterly insane. And I say that not as a cliche. I watched the documentary recently and I thought to myself, this guy from the very beginning was insane. He's a ranting hysteric. We would have put him in, we would have incarcerated him. Maybe, well, maybe not today in modern politics here, but <laughs> he was absolutely insane. And this is the spot where he made his speeches. So over here, on the far left over here, is Keith Ware. That's Audie Murphy's company commander. That's the guy that said, you're too young. I'm not getting any kids killed. He's over here on the left. Super dude there with the sunglasses. This is the 23rd of April, 1945. Above them was a massive eagle, massive Nazi eagle. And at the moment, and I researched this, so I, I'm absolutely sure that this is true. At the moment that he had the medal put around his neck, the Americans, you guys, blew up this massive swastika, concrete swastika, but you used so much TNT that pieces of the debris flew like 100, 200 yards, and a chaplain was actually injured by part of the concrete eagle. There's the guy himself, Audie Murphy, the ultimate poster boy for American courage in World War II, in Salzburg, 15th of June, 1945. Given an option, go to the White House, receive the Medal of Honor there, or on the battlefield. He said, I want to stay on the battlefield. I want people in the 3rd ID, my division, to watch me get the medal. Given it by Alexander Patch, the guy I mentioned earlier on. Look how young he looks. He's been in over 200 days of some of the most unimaginably fierce combat you can imagine. Some people say he killed 120, 140, 150 Germans. Who cares? Lost his best friend. Only time he cried in World War II is when he lost his best friend in the south of France. I've been to his best friend's grave. Over 200 days of the most unbelievably brutalizing combat you could see. And look how young he is. Inside, forever old. He left something of himself. He left a lot of himself in Europe when he came home. Back in Hollywood, a guy called Jimmy Cagney picks up Life magazine and he sees this picture. It's Audie Murphy on the front of Life magazine. And Jimmy Cagney thinks to himself, my God, that's a movie star. He's so good looking. Jimmy Cagney contacts Audie Murphy in September 1945 and says, hey kid, you fancy coming out to Hollywood? Murphy says yes. Jimmy Cagney puts him up in his in home, pays some acting lessons, pays for him to get fit in a gym. Cagney said he looked terrible. He was very, very thin. He was jittery. He had terrible PTSD. Jimmy Cagney puts him back on his feet, gets him his first role in 1947 in a B-movie about West Point, and the rest is history. Over 30 Western movies, the great classic to Helen Back, that was his autobiography, great country and Western songwriter, a wonderful, wonderful career, but deeply damaged, violent, massive gambler, chronic gambler, owed the mob a lot of money in the 1960s, and had troubled, a troubled life, interior, inside, very troubled indeed. Michael Daly, 23rd of August 1945, that's an act of benediction. Look at his eyes, they're closed. This is as if someone is benighted. It's an act of benediction. Truman there, 23rd of August 1945. That's the largest number of superheroes 
ever gathered in the White House. And by that, I mean the largest number of Medal of Honor recipients, over 20, I think there's 28 of them receiving the Medal of Honor, and Michael Daly is in the back row over here. And there he is coming back, 20 years old. And right beside him in the car over here is his father, Colonel Paul Daly. And Michael Daly, homeboy, hometown hero, coming back to crowds everywhere, didn't want to be a star, didn't want to win any medal or earn any medal, just doing his job, trying to keep kids alive. He said later on that he wished his father had received the Medal of Honor rather than him. It already weighed heavy just the day after he'd received it. There's Murphy looking like the true movie star that he did become, very handsome. So on his return to France in 1948 for the first time, he went to the very spot where his, uh, where his best friend Lattie Tipton died. There he is in a wonderful, wonderful movie, Red Badge of Courage, uh, made in 1951. John Houston, the director, great director, one of my favourite directors, said that um, he was disturbed by Murphy. That when he met him, there was something missing. And Murphy said, how could I ever get really excited by life again? The basically, the reservoir of his adrenaline had been drained dry. Keith Ware, of the four guys I write about, the only guy that stayed in the service. The only man, the only guy, the only person in US military history, the only person to go from draftee to general officer. So there are other people who've done that that had previous military experience before World War II, etc. But he was drafted from an office in California working for a, a catalogue company and ended up as the commander of the 1st Infantry Division, the big red one. And that is taken in Cambodia in 1968. We weren't supposed to be in Cambodia in 1968. We were in Vietnam. But the enemy were in Cambodia, so guess where he went? His helicopter was shot down and he died on the 13th of September 1968, aged 53. He's buried at, at Arlington National Cemetery. I've been to his grave. It's a five-minute walk from Audie Murphy's grave. And there he is, 1971. Died in Virginia, not far from Roanoke, in a plane crash. Um, I love Audie Murphy, not just because he's a great movie star, not just because he worked it in World War II. I love him because he was tortured and damaged and broken, but he came back, like so many men from that generation, and he never, ever put the war behind him. He put it to the side. And one of the things that I'm always reminded about, and I'm going to wrap up now, one of the things that I admire most about the so-called greatest generation is not just what they went through in the 30s, not just what they gave in the 1940s, not just that they built this country, that they created the modern middle class, that the America we live in today was born out of their spirit and their sacrifice and their hard work, that they gave us everything. What I admire about so many of them is that they came back from hell and they got on with the job. And they didn't grumble and complain and they didn't talk about it. They just went to work, rolled up their sleeves and did what they did. And we all know what they did. They made this country great. And he was one of them. Morris Britt, November the 26th, 1995. Never a day of his life he wasn't in pain. 
the wounds he suffered in World War II, his grandson told me, created pain every day of his life. But his grandson told me one other thing. He never saw his grandfather without a smile on his face. Positive, optimistic, never complain, work hard. Feel blessed for the little that you have, just feel blessed to be alive. Get on with it. Lieutenant Governor in Arkansas, successful business career, never threw a football again. He died in 1995 when he was sent into hospital for an operation, and it was a complication to a World War II wound that finished him off. So he was killed by a complication during surgery. And there's Michael Daly, who I, um, I have an enormous amount of respect for. And when I go on the journey with him, this is this wonderful institution, I will try to control my emotions because I stood where he fought. I stood where he fought and earned the Medal of Honor in the heart of darkness, and I've cried. Because when you think how far these men went, when you go from Sicily and you cross every stream and you walk, look at every mountain and you look at every street corner and then you get to Nuremberg and you think, my God, how did they do it? How did they do that? At the end of his life, he came back. He was a heavy drinker, got into fights, directionless, a lost soul. And it wasn't until he started volunteering for a hospital, a veterans hospital, that he said that he found a cause that felt great. He said, in my life, I never felt more proud to be an American. I never felt more alive. I never felt more patriotic than when I was a company commander in combat, age 20, with 200 Americans under my command, from every different part of this country, every different background, different accents, different Americans. Never in my life have I seen so many Americans from so many different backgrounds united, ready to die for a greater cause, a cause greater than themselves a cause that I, as a European, have benefited from most. And finally, he did find a cause that gave him some sense of satisfaction. And he said, there is no happiness. There is no true happiness to be found in life by accumulating houses, accumulating trophies, looking at your, constantly looking at your iPhone, checking the stock market, that hasn't been very much fun recently, has it? Anyway, <laughs> I don't have any stock, so it doesn't matter. Um, and he said, there isn't anything else that will give you a sense of true purpose and happiness in your life, ultimately. The only thing that will do that is serving others. Finding something bigger than yourself. Finding something that you can give to that is bigger than yourself. And when he died, just before he died, he was given last rites by his priest. And you might think this odd, he saluted the priest. And he said, you know, the world doesn't need any more people who can fire a gun. It needs peacemakers. And that's the words, the final words almost of a man who gave, his, who gave everything, who was one of your greatest ever warriors. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up now, but I'll say one final thing. 
As I speak right now in Europe, something's happening that I, something is happening that I would never imagine would happen in my lifetime. Young women, Ukrainian women, are probably, as I speak, performing acts for which they should be recognized and given the Medal of Honor. There are 34 democracies on this planet. It's a pathetically low number. 34, and one of them, the 34th, could be no longer a democracy. That would leave just 33. Democracy is too valuable for words. All the men I've talked about, I spent 25 years of my life writing about them, they were prepared to die for democracy. Freedom is never, as many veterans told me, free. It has never, ever been free in your history. All through this great country's history, you have bled for freedom from the very, very beginning. We must never, ever take for granted democracy. And we must do everything we can to support others who would fight and die so that they could be free. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for that stirring lecture. I'm uh, the son-in-law of Captain Joseph E. Martin, 7th Infantry, the Cotton Bailers, who went from North Africa to Purchase Garden. And I got to, he was my father-in-law, I flunked his math class at VMI. But <laughs> he said there were two times he cried after the war. One, he went to Anzio and saw a, a list of people who had been lost in action. One, he sent out on a patrol. Said that hit him hard. The other time was he went by himself to see to Helen back. And he said he found himself crying with, when they were playing dog-faced soldier. And he was a great man and uh, a proud veteran of the 3rd Infantry Division. And I really, I wish he could have been here. Yeah, that would have been amazing. Yeah. Wow. We would have given him a standing ovation. Thank you. I don't want to answer too many questions because I know I have banged on way too long because I took it too long, but I'd love to answer any. I hope you didn't. You guys weren't falling asleep too quickly. <laughs> I think you described Audie Murphy when he went in. Sorry, I'm sorry. You described Audie Murphy going in almost literally as a child, uh, and therefore went in as a private. But in some of the later pictures, including the day he received the medal, I thought I saw yeah. a lieutenant stripe on his helmet. Were these all field promotions during? Yeah, he, uh, in only 200 days. Uh, well, actually, I think it was more like the third idea was in combat. It was in combat for 335, but he was in on the front line for about 200, Sicily all the way to the end of the war. And um, yeah, he ended the war as a um, second lieutenant um, and didn't want to be a lieutenant. Um, he they in March of 1945. He was um, told that he needed to be promoted. He, they needed leadership in his company. He started in Sicily in B Company and ended up being commander of B Company by night, 
by so a private and B company, 1943, Sicily, first day of the liberate, we started to liberate Europe. And then by the spring of 1945, an awful long time later, becomes the company commander and didn't want to be an officer. He said, I don't want to be an officer. And the reason why he didn't want to be an officer was because if you get promoted to an officer rank within a company, you leave the company. And he didn't want to leave his family. He didn't want to leave his guys. And the second reason he didn't want to be an officer was because he couldn't really read or write that well. And he was embarrassed, ashamed of that, and he didn't want to do the paperwork. So they made a deal and said, OK, Audi, you get to stay in B Company. You can command it. He liked the idea of that. And number two, you don't do any paperwork. Executive officer at battalion level will do all your paperwork. And he's like, OK, if that's, if that's the way you want it, definitely. So that's the way he became promoted. Very good question. Uh, it's not a question, I have a comment. Uh, when Audie Murphy's plane crashed, uh, I was in a rescue thing to go up and where the plane had crashed into the side of the mountain. And we were there the next morning, it crashed in a fog and all, and I couldn't, we couldn't find it. So it crashed right into a cliff. And some of it was so steep to get down to, we had to have really good trucks to get up there. Anyway, uh, the fire trails led close to it, and we had to almost rappel down to get it. And the plane was still, the magnesium was still burning and all that, but uh, wow. we uh, carried the remains back up, and it's it a pretty trying thing we did. But I've got a little piece of the airplane somewhere. You, you, you found Audie Murphy? You really... No, I didn't find him. I helped with the recovery when okay. uh, the, the rescue squad, when we got there, we were... Probably, I was probably about the fifth person there. Right. So, yeah. Wow. Not something I want to do again. No. Amazing. Wow. Thank you, anyway. Thank you for doing that. Sir, I uh, have one comment. Yep. Observation. Uh, before the pandemic, my wife and I uh, visited Comar. Right. And uh, our tour guide uh, had, took us to a place where the essentially it was the last stand of Audi with the... Uh, the tank and so forth. Uh, it was a it was a it was a, a beautiful day. Uh, it was a bit cool and a, a bit a tiny bit of rain, uh, and things were so very still. There was just a bit of wind, and uh, tour guide told the story of Audi trying to protect his men and so forth um, to hide in the woods because they were going to be outnumbered and so forth. Um, and then he went to the tank and he tried to and he did. Uh, do what you have described. Uh, it was really interesting, and uh, as uh, uh, before we left, uh, our tour guide uh, read the poem, uh, They Shall Not Grow Old. And it was very, it was just, as he finished, it was just dead silence as we walked back to the tour bus. I mean, it was, it was really interesting. It really was uh, touching. One more question. Do you think we could do it again if we had to? Um, that is a great question. <laughs> but I, I like to think so. I think that... Um, I think if the same, same things were on the line, I think so. 
And I say that for a reason. And this is not to blow my own horn. I hate egotism. Uh, about three weeks ago, I went to the annual ball for the 15th Infantry Regiment. Three of the guys here, Audie Murphy, Keith Ware, and Michael Daly, three of the four fought in the 15th Infantry Regiment. The most decorated regiment in terms of medals of honor in US history. No other regiment in American history has fought in more battles abroad, seen more combat, or received more medals of honor than the 15th Infantry Regiment. Going all the way back to the very first chapter in your history where you fought for freedom. And I go to their annual ball and I'm very nervous. And they asked me for some reason to talk to them after the, their dinner and they were all really drunk because they'd been, not all of them, but they were, <laughs> they were pretty drunk, some of them, because they have this grog and they have this punch bowl and they stick in an alcohol from every single period that they fought in. So the Indian Wars is literally like moonshine. They have tequila from the Mexican War, you know. It's just, you watch it, and every time they do it, you know, the, the officer that does it, or whoever has to do it, has to slug at least a third of the bottle back. So they, you're like, whoa. So anyway, by the end of the dinner, you can imagine this place was pretty rowdy. Um, the 15th Infantry Regiment is the most combat-ready regiment in this country right now today. Guess where they're going? Pretty soon. They're the people that are working on, and this is public knowledge, they're the people that are given the latest tanks, the latest armament, the latest technology as ground troops to get the job done if it needs to be done tomorrow. This regiment, the 15th that I was invited to. And at the end, I finally basically had to stand in the middle of the room, the ballroom, I had to walk into the middle of the ballroom and I had to stand there for 10 seconds and I said, um, could you be quiet please? <laughs> You know, I, do you want me to tell you about your history or not, you know? And I had to make it really short and concise and to the point, unlike tonight. Anyway, they were amazing. And they made me an honorary me member of their regiment. Yeah. So I, um, I couldn't, I actually didn't, I, I don't care, I cried. That's the greatest honor. Of, I, I really say this, I'm 56, I've seen, a, I, I've been around veterans, I, you know, I, have been thanked sometimes, whatever, but that was the most, that was the greatest honor of my life to be as a limey, to me as a Brit, as a civilian, to be made a member of that regiment. My point is, when I sat down with those guys that evening and I looked around me, I thought, most of the people I'm talking to, nearly all of them are younger than me. I think I was the oldest guy in the room. I'm 56. So the Lieutenant Colonel, the Majors, executive officers, the guys that are going to go and take you Americans into combat and do the job, who've already, by the time they're in their mid-40s, the battalion commander who sat next to me was 46. Seven tours of duty. He's got three kids. They've moved every three years in the last 15, 20 years. He doesn't get paid very much. This is the small amount of people in this country, the less than 1% who are doing the business for us, that we take, I think, too much for granted. And I looked at these people's faces, and yeah, to answer your question, yeah, they'll kick ass. They're amazing.
They are lean and mean and keen and they are killers and they're trained and they're experienced and do not doubt it. Do not doubt. They'll do the job. Thank you. Oh, sorry, yes. Do we have any, do we have any veterans here? Any, any veterans from any war? Anybody that's worn the uniform? Please stand. Please stand. Thank you.